1: Chumba.
2: J- ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchases, full work, by law, 18 plus, Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to my first show. My guest today is the incomparable Cynthia Nixon, a activist, an artist, a politician, a friend of the theater and of the screen, and someone I've admired for an incredibly long time, and I'm a big fan of. So thank you for being here, Cynthia. It's a pleasure to meet you.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure.
0: Um, h- how are you? I have to start with the question that we're asking everyone. How, how are you? How are you staying sane and positive right now? And, and how, are you, how are you doing?
2: Um, I think I'm, I'm doing fine. Um, we, um, uh, my, my, I have three kids. One of them is in Chicago, um, on his own very, uh, with a job, which is amazing that it, that causes him not too much exposure. Um, he's been, been very active in the protests, um, which I was scared about at first, but he, um, he seems fine. Um, my middle kid uh, graduated from high school via Zoom, which was, they did a wonderful <laughs> job, but it was, um, you know, you think about all the things that should be happening in your senior year of high school that he didn't get, which, yeah. you know, uh, which is hard. And then my 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 nine-year-old is really thrilled to be... Um, uh, out of school, out of homeschooling in particular, and we are looking with horror at the fall and um, the resumption of the of the homeschooling because doesn't seem like uh, anybody will be going back to school uh, at least not full time in the fall.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think about all the heartbreak that everyone is feeling right now and everyone is going through, and then I think specifically at kids yeah. and that experience that they're having, the bewilderment, the upset, the isolation, the the confusion, the missing out, and how interesting that your three kids are at such different places in their lives. Yes. And I think it's hard, it. it's
2: hardest, right. My, my, my 17-year-old just had a friend come out last night who's going to be with us for a few days, which is great. I'm really relieved that my oldest one has a roommate, so has that kind of contact. But I think on my nine-year-old, um, he really hasn't... He's seen a few friends his roughly his age who are children of our friends but um he's not seen any of his classmates since this began and I think that's been really really hard on him.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, the show is a love letter to theater, as we know, yeah. and you have, I think, played in the arena of the most dramatic theater of them all, and that's politics. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, you know, if, if we can, I I would just love to, to ask a couple of questions. I mean, you have such an authentic and a- inspiring way about you. I, I actually had the pleasure of seeing you speak in a pretty intimate setting at the wrap women's breakfast a few years mm-hmm. ago mm-hmm. and I've seen you in a room of 800 on Broadway and I've I've seen you up close and personal on my television screen and I'm just so curious you know, you're you're such a warm and real politician, and and what were you pulling from when taking on that persona? Was it anything from your performative past or the passion you were feeling in the in that new moment for you? You know, you took the stage several times during that race, and I, I'm just wondering what was the driver for what you had to embody in in front of a new type of audience.
2: Well, so. A few years ago, before I ran, I played Nancy Reagan in a uh, a television sh- uh, you know, like a, a, a movie on television. And so I read a lot about her, and I read a lot about their family, and I read a lot about Ronald Reagan. And when Ronald Reagan ran for governor of California, people were very skeptical. Uh, I think it goes without saying I'm not a, a fan of the Reagans, but I think that's clear. <laughs> but anyway... Um, But he was asked over and over what kind of training is being an actor for being a a politician or being an elected leader. And he said, now that I've started to do this, um, started to campaign at least, he said, I can't imagine anyone who doesn't have an acting background uh, being good at this at all. He said, there are so there is so much crossover um, in terms of well, certainly people knowing who you are, that's the first thing. You being comfortable being in front of crowds of people, you being comfortable meeting the public um, and being comfortable uh, sometimes making a speech that you get handed minutes before um, pages to and making it sound like um, (laughs) those are your own words. Um, I think that, uh, I think that, for me, the most challenging thing, look, in my, whatever I do in my life, I do try and be um, sincere, like sincerity is my right calling card in, in life. Um, and so I think that that as, as an actor that serves me well, and as a, as a, as a politician that served me well. Um, I think the, the hard thing, though, about running for office, particularly such a, an exalted office as governor, is you just have to project confidence all the time. Yeah. Um, and you have to project that we are going to win. Right. Both of those things, even if you have a day when you're not feeling confident or even if you don't necessarily think it's 100 percent that you're going to win, you just have to keep um, projecting that. I think that's, as, a, as an actor, like we all know, as an actor, emotions come in a very varied way. Like there's this famous story, this is a very long-winded uh, answer to your question, but you know, there's this famous story about Deborah Winger in An Officer and a Gentleman, and apparently she and Richard Gere hated each other. And yet those sex scenes are <laughs> some of the most Erotic, I think that have ever we've ever seen in a mainstream film. And she was asked, "How did you?" You know, she was very uh, upfront about the fact that she really hated him. And she said, "I just allowed all the emotions that I was feeling to to show, to be unmasked. And when you're feeling something real, the viewer will just turn that into whatever it it, it is in the situation. But the thing that that a viewer ref, you know responds to is the fact that what you're you really are feeling something, and so the better I think the better the best actors don't ever censor themselves, and and even if the emotion that is coming out of them seems inappropriate to the moment, they let it happen. Uh, you know I think of people like Philip Seymour Hoffman, and it just adds this richness of texture. You can't really do that in politics, right? <laughs> I- <laughs> if you feel kind of snarly one day that you get just have to censor yourself yeah um so, so so for me as an actor that was the a big challenge but i think i think that when i lined up the best and when i was the most successful in my campaign it was because i really believed in the things that i was saying and that i was um, advocating for, and I really believed in and I do believe still in this in a vision of New York and that New York could be um, so much so much better and so much more progressive and and benefit so many more uh, uh, people across the board than it than it does right now, and that you know we had a we have a had a really great um, platform, and that was from working really you know hand in hand with activists and organizations that have been fighting on these issues whether you're talking about criminal justice or green energy or healthcare for all for 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 decades and so they it was taking the activist vision of what we can have and should have here and bringing it to the political forum which i think is a is a trend that we're seeing more and more that there is less of a of a barrier between who's an activist and who's an elected leader. I, I think about obviously people like Bernie Sanders. I think about people like um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and the whole squad. I, but I also think about people like in you know more locally, like Jemani Williams, our public advocate um, in New York City. And I think increasingly, if when we're fighting um, corporations and big money interests. Um, we need elected leaders who are really in touch with social movements on the ground and, and are part of, of implementing them, that there is a, there is an inside game and an outside game. And you've got to be, you've got to be playing both if you want to be an elected leader that gets progressive things done.
0: I totally agree. I, I think the, um, the, the everyday voter has actually turned up his or her activism taste buds as well in response to to the other sides, um, the the opposing views of, of other parties and and the 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 Trumpian world that that has existed since twenty sixteen. And I think that's done a great thing for both the, the voter and for the politician to have to amp up their level of activism and, and progressiveness
2: and I, and I think obviously there's a lot wrong with our with our new social media chapter that we're in but uh, there is a lot right and and it does have to do with so many more voices really coming into the into the public forum and and, and certainly if you just take the black lives matter, movement uh it it couldn't it couldn't exist without uh, social media and without i mean honestly when you're talking about police brutality people everybody having a camera on their phone that is what has uh, uh, people's commitment and people's long-term fight in this arena uh is is what has brought this this cracking open but but the other thing is that greater awareness throughout the public and everybody having the tools to to document this police brutality as it's happening and and bring it to a widespread audience.
0: That's right. We're the transparent generation. The transparency yeah. that exists now between opposing parties is no longer a secret that someone has. and to also
2: and in. also the ability to fact check in real yeah. time,
0: yeah, yeah. Your gubernatorial race, I'm sure, has been on your mind these last months. Your particular knowledge and feelings about Governor Cuomo are fully formed in a way probably most New Yorkers' uh, feelings are not. Granted, most New Yorkers did not run a political race against him. So I'm curious, as, as a lifelong progressive who is aware of both his history and shortcomings, what do you think of him now and the job he's doing? I, I mean, I, I was literally served a New York tough t-shirt ad yesterday on Instagram. So <laughs> he's, he's certainly making uh, a wave.
2: I think exactly the same thing that I thought of him before. I think that um, I, I appreciate so much his broadcasts. I think in the, uh, in the face of any coherent truthful uh information coming out of wash of out of the from the president um i think what he did was enormously valuable um by being being a being a daily presence and reassuring people and giving them information but i think his unwillingness to um to raise taxes in order to fund the things that we really need like education like health care like green energy, um, still leaves New York where it was, but even worse so, because we have such a budget shortfall, and he is willing to, to borrow rather than, uh, than tax corporations and
0: individuals um, that can afford it and that wouldn't even feel it. Fair. Fair. I hear you. I just know that um, a, a 70-year-old grandma asked me how her boyfriend Cuomo is doing. Yes, and when 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 he has infiltrated grandmas into making them feel good, it's uh it it's kind of just remarkable that we're at a place in in history. Oh, it's
2: also remarkable that he ma- he made this mountain, this uh, coronavirus mountain, you know, of the deaths. Uh, I, I, I mean, are you aware of this that he's I done this? I am. I mean, and that sure. so his point is how we've curtailed them, which I grand is impressive, but it's a mountain. Yeah, <laughs> And, and the reason that that mountain happened is that we didn't shut down earlier the way, the way places like, like California and Washington did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, Washington state is a beacon of, yeah. of, of how things could have been done.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, thank you for all that. Um, we're going to head into, into our four questions, um, that, uh, that sort of help illuminate, where your beginnings started your formative experiences that can I ask did. you before, before, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean
2: to interrupt, but, no um, what was your first Broadway show that you saw?
0: The, the first Broadway show I saw was actually crazy for you. In, oh, really? And <laughs> when I was, uh, in ninth grade, um, oh. I, I, I grew up in Boston. So I was really late to the, to the Broadway game because I saw touring Broadway and my parents rightfully so thought that was sufficient and and I hadn't made it down to New York until high right. school. Um, right. so, so yeah, that was, that was my first Broadway show, but the first, um, touring Broadway show I ever saw was Les Mis.
2: Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got
0: Thanks it. for asking Cynthia. No one ever asks the host. <laughs> really? No one cares. Um,
2: really? My, my mother grew up in Chicago mm-hmm. and so she would, oh, and that was a time, you know, my mother's born in 1930 and so that was a time when the Broadway companies would go on tour with yeah. all the original cast. And so, yeah, being in Chicago, she, she saw all these Broadway performances. She just saw them in her, in her uh, hometown. And, I mean, she always talks about um, uh, Judith Anderson, going to see Judith Anderson in Medea on Christmas. <laughs> and how there were, like, two rows of people there because who goes to see Medea on Christmas? <laughs> And that they had all the ushers come and sit in the seats to try and, and she's, you know, try and fill out the house a little bit. And she, but she says Judith Anderson was so amazing and she didn't let down even a wit. You know, she gave the full performance for the, you know, 60 people that were there or whatever.
0: I love that. Je- I think Jews go to Medea on Christmas. That's, <laughs> that's probably it. Yeah. No, there was a time where like you could see Robert Goulet in every city in America. Right. Um, right, <laughs>
1: right. Right. It was amazing. So This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, so your first show, do you recall what it was?
2: Well, so this is a hard question for me to know
0: how to answer. Um, because when you say my first show, do you mean my first Broadway show? I mean the, I mean the first show that you remember seeing that had an experience that, that meant something to you. And it could be Broadway or it could be the, you know, Cornhuskers of, of Westchester, you know, whatever had that, you know, you know, formative moment. Well, I know,
2: I know that my family took me to see the paper bag players a bunch, mm-hmm. and I loved them and I had the record, but I can't remember a moment. And I know they took me to see a performance of Winnie the Pooh because I had the poster in my room, but again, I don't remember the play. I have to say my mother, um, starting when I was six, um, she knew people at the public theater, so she could get us seats without having to wait online. <laughs> and so we would go to see the Shakespeare in the Park. And so I saw my first Shakespeare when I was six. Uh, it was Hamlet, it was with Stacey Keach as Hamlet, James Earl Jones as Claudius, and Colleen Dewhurst as uh, Gertrude. And the thing that I remember is. Well, I remember it being long and boring. <laughs> um that I remember James Earl Jones came on stage and you know started with his first Claudius speech, you know, our cousin Hamlet, you know, now our son uh, welcoming him effusively. Yeah. And 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 pretending to be full of love and and warmth. And I turned to my mother and I said he doesn't mean it. <gasps> And my mother was like, that's right. He doesn't mean it. And so that was a wonderful, because that was a wonderful moment because in this mass of like, oh, complicated language and they're far away and all this stuff, I could, I, I, the, the moment that, that, that was really made an impact was he's saying one thing, but he actually means something he means the opposite.
0: Um, How perceptive, Cynthia, that that you understood the dramatic and emotional arc of Shakespeare at six years well, old. Well,
2: I think I think James Earl Jones was probably yeah. really, you know,
0: amping that up. Yeah, y- you know, yeah. Um, well, I, at first, yeah. I was thinking a six-year-old and Hamlet. That that feels crazy, and then I thought, actually, no, Hamlet's Hamlet's the Lion King. So right. Of course, that worked for a six-year-old because that is right. the perfect storytelling structure, right? And, um, how funny and we, that it was James Earl Jones, who then was in the Lion King movie.
2: right, that's true. That's true. He was, yeah, as the other, as, as the as a good father, though. <laughs> um, but the first, I mean, the first Broadway show that I saw was Pacific Overtures, and I was just. I was, I, I, I mean, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I mean, I saw, it's so hard because like I had seen a chorus line before that, but at the public, uh-huh. you know, I had seen Pfeiffer's People, I think. Um, oh no, maybe that was like a year later. But So I, I saw a lot of off-Broadway stuff. Um, but, I, you know, I saw Pacific Overtures at the Winter Garden mm-hmm. and... Uh, And we were up in heaven, you know, and the Winter Garden is so enormous. It was like, wow, there's tiny, tiny little people down there. (laughs) But I must have seen it well enough because, you know, if you know Pacific Overtures, it is supposed to be done with an all-male cast and men playing the women's parts, as it would be traditional Japanese theater. Um, But at the very end in the last number which is contemporary there are men and women on stage singing and dancing that song next um and again again i guess i guess so many of my theater stories were like moments of perception that i had that my mother complimented me for and made me feel great like oh i've really got a an eye for this but my mother said well where did all those women come from and I said, oh, but didn't you notice they were the people scurrying around in black all during the rest of the show who were like doing the puppets and, you know, basically kind of the facilitating the performance, which I had noticed, oh, which she wow. had. So even though I was in heaven, I guess I could see, you know, far enough to see gender. So that's something. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, you know, Sondheim lyrics. So deep. Right. And, right. and so.
2: So for me, by the time I went to see Pacific Overtures, I was I was such a huge uh, Sondheim fanatic yeah. that again, when you see it, when you saw any Sondheim show, it was so then intertwined with your endless listening to the cast album afterwards. It's hard hard to separate.
0: Right, right, totally, totally. Now I know I know the feeling. Um, yeah. First show you were in when I was. Really little.
2: I was in a show at the YMCA, um, um, which the premise of which was that um, God was unhappy with with the world and was going to send another flood, like the the, the flood that we survived with Noah. Um, but this time, instead of of getting a good person to save two of each species, he was only going to save one species. <laughs> And so, this was a show that involved dividing the kids into groups, and each of us were a species, um, and we were all vying to win the chance to survive. And I was in the bird group, and our song was to the tune of Tit Willow from I, what is that from? The, the Mikado, I guess? Yes. Yeah. And right. And so, I still remember, of course. Um, On a tree by the ocean, us little birds sit singing. Oh, Noah, oh, Noah, please save us. We will tell you right off why Noah should save us sweet little birds from a watery grave. We're beautiful, we sing well, and here comes a wave. Oh, Noah, oh,
0: Noah, please save us. Um, um were you guys not traumatized by this rendition? No. I remember I wore this
2: sort of um turquoisey dress that I that I in my own mind I was a peacock cuz I was kind of in a peacock color. Sixth grade at my elementary school. I was in an environmental musical that a, a music teacher of mine wrote. I, I got to do the Sweet, Tender, Young Thing mm. in Afraid of you and Me all in elementary school. But then when I, I started acting professionally when I was 12, mm. and so when I was 14, I did my first professional show, which was a Broadway show, which was um, The Philadelphia Story with Blythe Danner and Edward Herman and Mary Louise Wilson, um, directed by the great Ellis Rabb. And, um, and it was very daunting because I had been doing film and television for a couple of years at that point, And I was very internalized in a way that worked well on film. But, um, and so I would come home because my mother was, abs- my mother had been an actress and had majored in it in college and gone to Yale drama school and studied with Uta Hagen for years and had never had any success and stopped before I was born, but was still a, a terrific acting teacher. And I think she would have been a wonderful director, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, I would come home after rehearsal and say, oh, you can't believe what they want me to do. And I would show her as if it was like appalling and gauche. And she would be like, that's good. Do that. <laughs> because it seemed so broad and obvious to me after having done all this really small naturalistic film stuff. Mm. Um, so how did I you had get to get
0: the gig? How did I get the gig? how did you get the gig? Yeah. Did you, did, did someone come after you? Did you have an agent? No, no. I had a, I had,
2: yeah, I had an, I had a manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a manager um, from the time I was like 12. Um, yeah. And they would send me up on, and it was actually, it was Sarah Jessica. It was down to Sarah Jessica and I
0: actually, funnily enough. Did, yeah. did you and Sarah Jessica know each other as, as kid actors then? The
2: we point? did. We totally did. Because when we were, th- when I was a year before we had done a, a TV film together in which we played sisters with Vanessa Redgrave. And it was Jack Albertson's last uh, performance um, before he died. Yeah. Wow. So we yeah, we definitely knew each other and we were on, we had been on a talk show together on Joe Franklin together. And it, you know, look, the, 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 the pool of, of of little girl actresses, at least at that time, it, 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 you know, in terms of people who were good and actually worked, was pretty small, right?
0: So, right, right. So when when you reconnected for Sex in the City, you had been you had been in touch that whole time, or lost oh, touch? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely.
2: I mean, I would go see her and things, and she would come see me and things. Yeah, totally. We would do readings. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, do you think about? Um, your formative theater experiences teaching you something different than those formative television experiences as both an actor and a, and a human? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess for me
2: as a, as a teenage actor, those film and television experiences were so much about, uh, You know, being on location and catering and having my own dressing, like like the 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 trappings of that world were so much a part of filming things. Particularly because I did I did a film when I was twelve and I was away from home for ten weeks and I was on my own for like a bunch of that. Um yeah, theater was very different. I mean, Blythe Danner was the leading lady and I was so in love with her from even before I worked with her and then anyone who works with her then falls much more in love with her like i have been such a fan of hers from from 1776 and loving molly and like all these great performances she had given and edward herman of course i had seen him as fdr and um uh i guess i was very aware of the the caliber of the pot i had fallen into <laughs> Right. I mean, I Ellis Rabb directed it. Ellis Rabb is a was a great director who who ran the the Phoenix Theatre, which is as close as we ever had to a national theater in this country. Mm. Um, and I had seen, you know, I had seen his a few years earlier. I had seen his production of the Royal Family, which was extraordinary. Um, so I guess, and Mary Louise Wilson, I think had, had been in that also. So I was just aware of the, I don't know, the, 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 the level of people. And I would just sit in awe of them. And I learned so many lessons from them. Um, like, okay. I mean, particular, well, like Blythe and Blythe Danner and Edward Herman, so they acted together a lot. They were an acting they were not a rom- romantically uh, they were not a couple, but they they were a, an acting couple.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: at Williamstown they were they did tons of plays together. Um, and so they had a kind of a, a shorthand with the, they were like a great match. Um, but also, I was so stunned by the lack of nerves that anyone had right? And how how Blythe was just not nervous or seemed not to be nervous, uh, even on the opening night. Um, And also there were certain things that that were not quite working. I mean, she's not really great casting for that part. (laughs) And so I watched her kind of in performance completely rejigger her because she's so endlessly warm. And that point of that character is that she's cold and is accused of being all these dated, horrible words like frigid, Mm-hmm. Um, and so I watched Blythe completely rejigger her performance, her performance in performance, not in rehearsal. Cause it's, um, and I, and, and things happened like Edward Herman, uh, wa- wears glasses in real life, but he didn't ever wear glasses on stage, but they had him, um, wear glasses and, you know, he was so endlessly, all of a sudden he could see the audience and like, he would talk about that. What a, what a thing that was for him. Um, I remember uh, just, there was such good fun to be had. Um, like I remember one time they called places and we were all there and it was eight o'clock and they were ready to go up. And Blythe Danner said, no show in New York ever goes up at eight o'clock. I'm going back to my dressing room. Call me at 805. <laughs> Stuff like that. It was, so uh, um, and, and there was, and, and one time the, the sound system, like we we're at the Beaumont, it's a huge theater. Yeah. And the sound system went off, but it was, it was making horrible beeping noises. And they tried to solve it for a while. And Blythe just said, we were trained in the theater, just turn the damn thing off. <laughs> <laughs> you know how she handled so many, like at the, at the Beaumont, people sit sort of in the front row below the stage. And so people were always putting their programs on the stage, which is so unbelievable. And Blythe would just sort of, as she was walking around and doing things, she would just sort of reach down and take a program and hand it back to the person. You know, like there was so, she was so calm and at home and at ease. And there was one time I remember there was a particular performance. You know, you get these in the theater where you just have a crazy, crazy, laughy house. Yeah. It's sort of like inexplicable, right? And as you know, and we're a comedy. And as, as a kid, I was like, this is fantastic. This is like Christmas, you know. And I was like going for all the laughs. And I had noticed that that Blythe was not. And then Edward came on stage. And he was underplaying so much so that his like his volume was low, and I I think they ex- finally explained it to me because I was so baffled that basically rather than rise to the occasion like trained seals being thrown extra fish on a particular day, they actually did the opposite, and they Edward got a little quiet and a little more uh, con- contained. So that the audience kind of couldn't laugh so much and they actually had to listen. And so in this way, these two very artful calm people reined the audience in and, and made it so they weren't running away with us, that we were actually in control of the
0: performance. That's masterful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But then there were other things like, um, you know, it was my first show. And so the the woman whose job it was to sort of be you know take care of our watch the dialogue and give notes in the director's absence and stuff she said do you notice you're putting a butt in front of basically every line (laughs) and it was it was like how I was sort of emotionally connecting like that every line I was was saying was coming out of a place of like yeah but I don't agree like but 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 and 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 uh, you know, I hadn't noticed this, but it was so I stopped. But also it was interesting to me it was a way that I was keeping all of my lines alive for me as if every line I have was sort of like arguing with a thing that had just been said. And there was one and and I was following my my impulses. I was trying to be so in the moment and I was pretty pretty good in the moment. but there was one night, where I, uh, I I usually set, set a line I was, as I was, I think, looking at a picture and knelt down. And that night I just didn't feel like kneeling down. Mm. It didn't seem right, so I didn't. Mm. And I got off stage and our amazing uh, stage manager, Helene Head, came tearing back <laughs> with Mary Louise Wilson. Who I guess had the line after mine, which was a laugh line, and she didn't get the laugh because I was standing in front of her. Right. <laughs> and you know, it was it was one of those things. I mean, they were they were, but but people were like, "Oh my god! Like, what is this kid, you know, doing?" But it was once, and then I I understood. But you know, it was it was a kind of a thing where I was thinking so hard about the truth of my performance and what felt real that I forgot there was a whole, you know, stage of people that were, um, you know, that there was a stage picture to be considered rather than whether I felt like kneeling at a particular
0: moment. Life's lessons. Don't, don't step on Mary Louise Wilson's laughs. Don't, (laughs) don't block her on a laugh. Got it. Got it. Um, it's, it's dream roll time. If there was any show anywhere at any time, what, would your dream role in that show be? Well,
2: so I mean, there are lots of dream roles, but if I take your question to mean that I could be in any production, in any part, at any point in history, That's is that right. right? That's right. That's right. so. Then I think I wouldn't focus so much on like me getting to play, you know, fill in the blank. Um, of course, if, if there was a world in which I could actually sing and I got to, you know, play some great singing part, uh, of which I can think of 5,000, but I think my real dream would be to go back, um, to like, I would go back to, 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 to the, to the globe. Mm. Right. And to, be i mean to be in a rehearsal room or i guess they didn't have rehearsal rooms to be in on in a rehearsal on stage yeah. with shakespeare and his company yeah and so it wouldn't be so much the part that i would be playing right i could be a page or something <laughs> but i would i would say you know and i i think the thing that i would like to go back to would be not like one of the big tragedies but like um like a fun comedy like As You Like It which mm. would be I mean sure I'll be Rosalind sure except I'm a girl so they only had boys doing right. Rosalind. Right. But, um, but I think to to go into a rehearsal like that that would in a play that has so many clowns in it yeah and to just get to feel of course they didn't have rehearsal like we have have rehearsal but to get to see what that was like and what those Actors must have been like, and how much goofing around there was. I mean, you always get the sense with Shakespeare's clowns yeah. that they're they're trying to rein them in because they'll right they'll just just talk and talk and talk, and that was part of part of the charm of them. But what were they? What were they like in in rehearsal? Is it like was it like being at a rehearsal of Saturday Night Live with everybody you know, or right. or the Marx Brothers or something? Um, that's what I would want. I yeah. would want to. You know, you could go back to, to Chekhov's theater, but I think, oh, well, why not go for Shakespeare? Like, yeah. Why not? why not? And particularly because we know so little about so many of those actors and just to see what they were like, they must've been, particularly the clowns must've been just amazing, eccentric people. So, um.
0: We have a surprise element of the show that we don't oh. tell our guests about. To oh, keep really? on toes. <laughs> it's a lightning round. Oh, no. Uh, okay. Okay. It's okay. It's free association. Oh, um, we put 30 seconds on the <laughs> clock. I list off classic American or British uh, plays and musicals. You um, give me the instinctual response of what you think the emotional theme Of that show is and we just see where it goes um it's and 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 my and my answers are like one word answers one word or up to three words the 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 idea of one word but like like if you said death of a salesman i could say like horrors of capitalism or something (laughs) (laughs) okay Okay. three seconds are on the clock pippin never saw it (laughs) what do you think if you had to guess um
2: j- uh Journey. It's actually perfect. Funny girl. Uh Fanny Bryce. Sweetie Todd.
0: Mm, revenge. Assassins.
2: Uh Horrors of America. <laughs> <laughs> How timely. My fair
0: lady. Uh
2: class. Lay Miz. Revolution. Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition.
0: Pacific overtures. Uh, Colonialism. Excellent. You did good. We're pretty matched. (laughs) We are pretty matched. matched. All right, we're pretty matched. Yeah. I mean it you know the, the, what, what I find remarkable often is sort of the through line that often exists with a lot of these classic musicals too that, that they all that they all are kind of related to each other and sort of what they're saying and feeling about America or ourselves or our loved ones. Um,
2: I mean, that's the thing about a really successful musical. That's right. Right. I mean, an enduring musical is that it it's it's grappling with
0: the the big issues. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You and I you and I first, um, I think, emailed over Oklahoma, um, which, you know, you were you were such a a generous fan of and and um, and and that. I think is one of the successes of that show is that it, it allowed such reimagination and rediscovery through a lens that uh, a director could have. Well,
2: but that's so incredible. But it's you know sometimes you see reimaginings of classic works, and you think, well, they just took a you know, they took a piece of chicken and they dumped like a lot of uh, you know hot fudge and. Butterscotch sauce <laughs> and potatoes and like you know things that are finding it up themselves but have nothing to do with the piece of chicken, right? Whereas the thing about Oklahoma was to excavate all the darkness and the horror that is there,
0: yeah.
2: It is just there in that story that we've grown up, you know, laughing at, laughing at Judd, you know, yeah, and and giving Curly a pass and. And, and and never thinking about how insidious Ann Eller really is. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, I mean, I mean, yeah. All the darkness of America is what that show is saying. And that's yeah. why it's so relevant. Yeah. 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 Cynthia, this was incredible. Thank you for sharing this time with us and sharing your heart and your soul and your creativity and your history with the theater and the arts. Um, I think it's going to keep many listeners it's going to keep me impassioned and and feeling hopeful for another week <laughs> which is yeah. what we need. Yeah, so thank you.
2: Well, thank you. It's 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 been a pleasure. Good. Good, good, good,
0: and we hope to see you back on stage in any
2: yeah. form. Well, no, uh, you know, back on stage would be great. What I'm really looking forward to is being back in a theater seat. Yeah, you know, I I love being a performer, but I I love more going. You yeah. know, and and um, I always, you know, I always have a docket of shows I'm wanting to go see, of course, and uh, I usually prioritize them in terms of what is going to close the soonest so I won't miss it and my wife and I often go to the theater on Wednesday evening and we were it was like Tuesday um and we were looking at all these shows we had been thinking about seeing and I just something little in my said to myself you know what? I'm not gonna go see the prudent show. I'm gonna see the show. If the world ends tomorrow, I'm gonna see the show that I want to have seen. And so we went to company that ah. Wednesday night and Thursday, they announced like Broadway Shut. Yep. And I have to say that that production was so incredible. And I uh, you know, I it 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 sustained me for a really long time being able to sort of savor it and digest it and call up my kid in Chicago and detail it moment by moment to him, all of the, the, the creative and, and excavating things that, um, that were done with that production again of stuff that was there, but it's just like, let's, let's shine a light on the, on the, on the corners and, and see what, see what we see, what's been lurking there all along.
0: I love that. I love that your March 11th show, that's what I'm calling everyone's last show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember my March 11th show quite well. I, well I remember, 11th show. My March 11th show was Sanctuary City, downtown, New York City Workshop, New Play. Yeah. Um, but I love that your March 11th show is literally about being alive. Yeah. Really special.
2: And being alone. <laughs> yeah. And
0: yeah.
2: being alone.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. All right, thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. you. Bye. My first show is produced by Josh Altman, MEP, Dory Berenstein, and Alan Seals, and is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to Leslie Papa and Whitney Holden-Gore at Vivacity Media Group. For more info about the podcast, visit bpn.fm myfirstshow. Follow me on Instagram at Eva R. Price.